Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 is where we are. Trusting in Troubled Times is our current teaching series. We're spending five weeks in these three chapters. We got stuck on chapter 2, didn't quite get through it. We'll wrap it up today and head into chapter 3 and wrap up this teaching series next week as we head into Easter the following week. Our Root Problem is the title of, uh, once again, this weekend's message. It's continued from last weekend. You guys like this weather? All this rain? You like this schizophrenic weather? We're going to call it bipolar weather. Last week, Friday, record high, record high. It hit 100 yesterday, record low. I had my shorts all out, and I had to bring my long pants back out this morning. I went around in shorts yesterday and got frostbite. It was cold for us desert rats, but it was beautiful, beautiful weather, great to have rain. It'll get back up to 100 this next week, actually only about 80. The book of Habakkuk is teaching us how to trust God in troubled times, whether troubled times are individual or widespread. If you understand what Habakkuk says, you'll be ready for anything. You could almost divide the three chapters up uh, Something like this. Chapter 1, faith wavers. Habakkuk is in great perplexity. He's struggling over the condition of Judah. He cries out to God, then God answers, and then he still has this perplexity. Chapter 2, faith waits. He begins to gain this whole new perspective about his difficulties, about troubled times. And then chapter 3, we have faith worships. You see... Habakkuk with this unbelievable perseverance. There's almost this uh, kind of rhythm in the book. Habakkuk complains, God answers. Habakkuk complains, God answers. Habakkuk trusts God. It's kind of our own life. That's how we kind of work and, and, and work through the issues of our own life. And, and what we see in Habakkuk is this unconditional faithful wrestling with God, which leads to the reality that There's something worse than disappointment with God, although he is disappointed with God. There's something worse than that, and that's disappointment without God. And he understands that. And uh, so as you look, as we saw here towards the end of the first chapter, and by the way, we started into chapter 2, didn't finish it. I I thought it was too important for us to kind of race on through, so this is kind of part 2 of chapter 2. Uh, on our root problem as we dive into that. And we're just going to review a little bit of what we did last week, but then we're going to dive deep into the second part of this. It's really the answer to our dilemma as it relates to our root problem. But the issue that Habakkuk is dealing with is, how can God discipline his people, Judah, with a nation more wicked? That's where, where he is in the second part of chapter 1, and then he heads into chapter 2. God responds, and all of chapter 2, God answers. He's, he's totally aware of the sins of the Chaldeans, and they will not go unpunished. But Judah is guilty of the same offenses. And so what we see here with Habakkuk is something similar to all of us. We all struggle with this. We all tend to default to being religious. Religious people tend to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. You do it too. I do it. We all do it. And yet the Bible says there are no good guys. There's no good guys. We like to divide the world into good guys, bad guys. 
In fact, it works something like this. If, if you're having problems, if you're having problems with your marriage, we tend to think, well, it's my spouse. <laughs> it's, it's her fault. It's his fault. Or if we're having problems parenting, who do we blame it on? It's these bratty teenage kids. <laughs> I can't quite manage them. Or if we're having problems financially, well, we're, we're in a recession right now. If it wasn't a recession, we'd be doing much better. Or if you're having problems on the job, it's that cranky boss. He's hard to get along with. I've never had a boss quite like him. Uh, The problem is it's much deeper. It's much deeper than that. And that blame shifting uh, actually makes you more part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Because this is what you need to keep in mind is that marriage doesn't put you in conflict with your spouse as much as it puts you in conflict with your own sinful nature. Parenting doesn't put you in conflict with your kids as much as it puts you in conflict with your own sinful nature. This recession, you know, didn't put you in conflict with your finances as much as it puts us in conflict with our own sinful nature. That, that's the deeper issue. That's the deeper issue in our lives. And so when we look for someone to blame rather than to say, hey, wait a minute, as a believer in Jesus Christ, by the way, this is what you need to keep in mind. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand the purpose of the person and work of Christ, do you have any idea who you are in Him and what He has provided for you for all eternity? Do you have any idea? You have the peace, the power, the very presence of God never to leave you or forsake you. Nothing absolutely can separate you from His love. And when the reality of that hits home, you realize that the the deeper issue is living living in reality of that truth and allowing, allowing your difficulties, whatever they might be, and realizing that those difficulties are not the cause, but they are the occasion for God to reveal your heart and to redeem your heart so that you can begin to live more in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to put on display the grace and the glory of Jesus regardless of what is going down. But our natural inclination is to is to blame, is to look for someone to point our finger at, and then that makes us part of the problem rather than the solution. And the solution really to our problems is that we all have sin, and we all desperately need God's grace. And that's where we find Habakkuk. That's what he's, he's grappling with here. He's saying, well, why would you use this more wicked nation to come over and discipline us? That doesn't make any sense. And there's this kind of a, though he's a very godly man, he's very religious at the same time as, as we all kind of fall prey to that. And so in chapter God deconstructs the Chaldeans to show us that there is a root of evil in every human heart that is the source of our problems that must be uprooted by God's grace if we're going to be able to trust God in troubled times. And uh, so that's where we're headed. Let's pray. There's only three verses we're going to look at. These are the key verses that we didn't get a chance to really dive into last week. And that's what we'll look at. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Take a moment once again. Keep our hearts open before God. I'm going to be praying a portion of 1 John chapter 1 in in this prayer. Father in heaven, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with you while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship with you And the blood of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins, all of our sins. We thank you for that, God. So as you reveal our sins through the light of your word, may we not look for someone to blame, but to confess our sins and to allow our troubled times to increase our joy in you as you conform us more and more into your likeness and character for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll look at three verses. We read all the other verses last week. It's murder and mayhem throughout, and yet you have these flashes of light. These are very profound verses, very significant. Second part of verse 4, but the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then verse 20, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. This is the word of the Lord. So the root of evil in every human heart, it tells us in Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us in front of the cross. The ground is level ground. We have no right to ever point fingers of accusation towards anyone. We were created by God for God to give glory to God, to put God on display in our lives. God created you. He keeps you alive every second. You owe everything to Him. You owe everything to Him. And yet it's the natural inclination of our heart to diss God, to do our own thing, to make life about ourselves. It's part of our sinful depravity. It's, it's what we do. It's what we do good. That's the root of evil in every one of our, of our hearts. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 2, God is describing the Chaldeans, the murder and mayhem. But really like bookends... We have the root of this wicked and evil fruit found in verses 4 through 5 and 18 through 19. And, and this is what we talked about last week. Quick summary here is that when you look deep into your heart, if you take time to look into your heart, what you're going to find there is unbelief, pride, idolatry. They kind of all work together. They're interrelated. And you can certainly see this in Genesis chapter 3 under the fall. Unbelief. Unbelief is... Uh, is, as it says here, turning from satisfaction in God. Now, unbelief is not no belief. It's an alternate belief system. If you do not believe in Jesus, you do believe in something. Everybody believes in something. Everybody puts their faith in something. And uh, when we say that you have unbelief, it doesn't mean that you don't believe. It's that you don't believe in the eternal God, Creator. You're not turning to Him to find your deepest satisfaction in Him. Because you were created by Him, for Him, to give glory to Him. That's where you're going to find your greatest satisfaction. But if you turn away from Him, naturally there will be what is known as a spiritual alienation that leads to a psychological alienation, and that leads you to pride. Pride. It's pride is life is all about me and my glory. We make life about ourselves. Because the Bible refers to it as being vain glory or empty of glory, empty of significance, security, acceptance. We are desperate because we've turned away from the living God. Therefore, our hearts become empty of glory and we begin to make life all about ourselves. A proud person is someone who's they're self-absorbed. They're, they're self-centered. Life is all about them. They're trying to find a sense of happiness 
And then obviously that spiritual alienation leads to this psychological alienation, which leads to this kind of social alienation, this idolatry. Idolatry is anything more important to you than God. It's natural and normal. I mean, if you've dissed God, you've turned away from God, you don't have belief in God, you, you begin to develop your own belief system, your life is going to be void, it's going to be empty. That's called pride. You become self-centered, self, self-consumed. Therefore, you're going to have to look for something to fill your heart if God has not filled your heart, and that's called idolatry. Idolatry is anything that occupies the place of God in your life. It's something preeminent, prominent, the center of your life, the most important thing in your life. And so you can really kind of see how this goes down, especially in Genesis 3, but in our own lives. Unbelief, this spiritual alienation leads to psychological alienation, this emptiness, this void. Therefore, this social alienation where I begin to give my heart to anything and everything more so than God. And this is the root issue of our lives. The Bible makes that very clear. I shared with you a little bit of an illustration with, uh, out of Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and I shared with you about, for instance, Madonna and how she talked about how she was driven. She said, here, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. She'd accomplish something, and then she'd feel good for a time, and then all of a sudden she'd feel mediocre, and then it would drive her to something, something more. Here's another quote that he uses here as an illustration of that vain glory, that empty of being... Uh, of glory, of significance, security, of purpose and meaning is he uses the, uh, actually, Sidney Pollack. In fact, it says not long before film director Sidney Pollack died, there was an article written about his inability to slow down and enjoy his final years with his loved ones. Though he was unwell and the grueling process of filmmaking was wearing him down, he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped, that's a quote, he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped. He explained, every time I finish a picture, I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I've earned my stay for another year or so. But then he had to start over. There was something that was driving him. And then Tim Keller goes on, and there's another illustration that he uses here. How many are familiar with the, the big tennis star a number of years ago, Chris Everett? Remember her? Chris Everett was a leading tennis player in the 70s, 80s. Her career win-loss record was the best of any singles player in history. She's in the Hall of Fame, tennis players. But as she contemplated retirement, she was petrified. And she said to an interviewer, I had no idea who I was or what I could do. Uh, what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. So as we look at this story in the Second chapter of Habakkuk, the reason the Chaldeans are burning down cities, vainglory, unbelief, 
pride, idolatry. The reason Madonna has fear of being mediocre. The reason Sidney Pollack was unable to slow down in filmmaking. The reason Chris Everett needed to keep winning tennis tournaments was to feel pretty. Is the same reason you and I do what we do addictively pursuing beauty, romance, family, money, whatever it is. We went through a whole list of those last weekend. And it's what drives our life. It's because of unbelief, spiritual alienation, pride, psychological alienation, idolatry, which is this social alienation, trying to to give our hearts to anything that we can give our hearts to. And oftentimes it's a good thing that has been elevated to an ultimate thing in our life. It's not a bad thing. For the most part, it's, it's good things. It's good things that we've elevated to an ultimate thing. And uh, it, becomes, it becomes idolatry. And that is the root of all evil in every human heart apart from God's intervention. I need to spend just a little bit of time on this before we go into the solution. Every person, every culture, every society, every political party, because of unbelief, pride, idolatry, takes good things and makes them into ultimate things to do for them what only God can do. Therefore, every time something goes wrong, everyone wants to blame someone else. That's what we typically do. That's that religious kind of an attitude that we we develop. Finger pointing is, by the way, finger pointing is arrogant and it's very self-righteous. And uh, it makes you part of the problem rather than the solution. And really the solution over and over again in the Bible is, is humility and repentance. It's to recognize your own sin and, and the part that you play in the condition of this society and this world and, and take responsibility for that and to understand God's grace and how he's redeemed us and to make your life not about you but about his glory. I mean, take, for instance, the current recession. If you follow politics much, Democrats, Republicans, and then you got the group that's somewhere in between that tends to vacillate between the two of those, independents. Maybe you're someone altogether different from those those two. But what went down as we went through this current recession, the first things that I began to hear, if you were to tune into some of the liberal uh, broadcast or the more of the conservative broadcast, is they tried blaming, they tried to find Democrats, Republicans, both trying to find someone to blame. For instance, one side said something like this, greedy business capitalist. That's the problem. That's the problem with our recession. It's the greedy business capitalist. We need more government regulation. And then you had another side, the other side saying, no, it's the stupid, idiotic government intervention. We need less government regulation. And you know what's interesting about the Bible? The Bible doesn't let you do that. The Bible isn't that simplistic or reductionistic. In fact, the Bible says that it's sin in everyone's heart. And in every human culture, some things are idolized and some things are demonized. And this is kind of really where our problem begins, where we can look at the root of the problem. That's, in, in other words, so if we do that, if we tend to idolize certain things and demonize certain things, then what we say is, well, this is the solution, the things that we kind of idolize. And, and those people over there, they're the problem. It's them. And, and so we kind of demonize them. Good guy, bad guy. Good guy, bad guy. And we do that, we do that politically, we do that in our homes, we do that in culture. And Christianity says our problem is sin, and it's in every human heart, and the answer is God's grace. The answer is God's grace. Let me give you an example of this. If you still have your Bible open in Habakkuk chapter 2, let me give you a couple examples. Let me read to you. Look at these uh, moral sins that Habakkuk spells out about the Chaldeans, verse 15. 
Listen to what he says. He says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Sounds like spring break party right there, baby. Doesn't it? I mean, drunkenness, let's get drunk and naked. That's what he's saying there. So, so you got that. You got a moral, moral problem there. And then look at verse 17. He's talking about what? Environmental sins. The violence done to Lebanon, it's talking about the forest, will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beast. He's talking about animals. So they're destroying the forest and the animals. So we got environmental sins. Now, this is what's interesting. I, I wanted to bring this up because liberal people are saying, you know, don't harm the environment. That's a sin. And then you got conservative people saying, hey, don't get drunk and have sexual promiscuity. It's a sin. And guess what the Bible says? The Bible says it's all a sin. And so you got both conservatives and liberal cultures have their own sets of sins, but because they are based on idols, for instance, a conservative conservatives would say moral goodness and family is ultimate instead of God and His grace. So they've made moral goodness and family as idolatry, and so therefore, because of that, they demonize everybody else that's not lining, living in alignment with that, as opposed to looking, no, our solution, we need to not idolize these certain things and demonize others, but we need to look to God's grace, God's glory. Liberals would say individual freedom and fulfillment is ultimate instead of God and His grace. And so what that tells us is that every culture has idols and therefore the seeds of destruction. Every political party, if you don't take it back to God and His grace, then we have idols that will ultimately create problems within our lives. I didn't share this in the first service. Let me share it with you. It was interesting. Germany in the 1920s, everything was going wrong in the culture. And if they had said there is a root of evil in every human heart, they would have maybe been well on their way to a solution. But instead, they heard the Nazis say, the Jews are the problem. The capitalists are the problem. And then they put the Nazis into power and the rest is history. So, the root issue is sin, and the solution is God's grace. And we have to be careful not to idolize and demonize and, and play the good guy, bad guy kind of routine. The Bible says we're all, we're all bad, and we all desperately need Jesus. And the answer to these issues is, is turning to Christ. So, how do we uproot uproot the evil in our hearts, and certainly we need to start there. And we do that. So if it tells us in Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, well, well, here's part of the solution. It's right there on your notes, Romans 5.1. Not the verse, but the, the, the address to the verse. This is simply wonderful because God didn't leave us stranded in our pathetic plight, but He invaded it with His presence. It says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love it. That you can have a right relationship with God by faith. It's by God's grace. You, you can stand completely right. You can have a relationship with God. He gives you a right relationship with God if you put your faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His love for us in this 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, a lot of people would say, well, you know, any, any religious group that believes in absolute truths, I mean, that's a, a form of idolizing certain things and demonizing, you know, certain people, and that's destructive. Religion is destructive. It all depends on what your absolute truth is. And the absolute truth of Christianity is a man dying for his enemies. That's amazing. God died for you to redeem you. There is no other belief system on this planet Earth that even comes close. Christianity is breathtaking. It's stunning. It will knock you sideways when you begin to understand it. It will revolutionize your life. It will change you. When you understand that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. The God of creation died for you. See, that's where the solution is. And so, therefore, when you begin to understand that, it leads to belief. Unbelief goes to belief, turning to satisfaction in God. And so that's where we get verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. See, belief is not just agreement with facts. Listen, I've said it many times, I'll say it again, that the Christian faith is not a blind leap into a dark chasm. Some people think, oh, what did you do? Commit intellectual suicide when you became a believer? Well, quite frankly, no. No, and in fact, as I studied, I realized that there was more evidence giving validity and veracity to the Scriptures and to the reality of this man, Jesus, than anything I've ever, ever studied. And in fact, most believers would actually say that it takes more faith not to believe whatever the option might be, that alternate belief system, than it does to believe because there's plenty of evidence because the Christian faith is historical, evidential, and factual. But it's more than that. Belief is not just agreement with facts in the head, but listen to me, it is a ferocious appetite for God in the heart. That there's this stunningly beautiful God who rescues us from our dilemma, from our plight through his son on the cross. Romans three sixteen through 21. You can turn there if you would like. I'm going to spend just a couple minutes there. But um, let me read to you some of these verses that I think that help us to understand this idea of belief. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And he's, uh, most of us are familiar with John 3.16. In fact, we could quote it, couldn't we? You could quote it? Let's quote it. Is that right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know John 3.17, though? Just as significant. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through the world that he might... That, let me say that. I didn't even get it right, did I? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. There you go. I got tongue-tied there, didn't I? And you guys laughed at me. And that's fine. But then he goes on, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's almost like if you're thrown a life jacket and you push it away, you're going to drown. You push Jesus away, you're going to drown. That's what he's saying. You're condemned. You're going to drown. 
It's our only hope. And yet it's the most inclusive belief system in the world. A lot of times people say, well, that sounds so exclusive. No, it's very inclusive. Every other belief system is based on works righteousness. Do the works, then you're right. Christianity is the only one that's based on faith righteousness. Put your faith in Jesus. The works are done for you. It's very inclusive. Put your faith in Him. Because works righteousness is not sure whether or not you can do the works. But faith righteousness, put your faith in Jesus. He did the works for you. That's amazing. But you push Him away, you're going to drown. That's what He's saying. You're condemned. You're condemned. I didn't say it. He says it. That's Jesus. That's what the Bible says. In fact, he even goes on. He says, here's the verdict. Here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. We don't want to give our lives to God. We are at enmity against God. That's that sinful nature working within our lives. Some of you even sitting there listening to me are kind of like, oh, how dare that guy even say what he's saying? <laughs> Well, I'm saying what the Bible says, and that's what's rising up within you is the very fact that you're at enmity against God. You don't want to hear this. You want to live life your own way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible's very clear about that. It says, for God so loved the world. Man, he was so madly in love with you. He sent his son on a rescue mission for you. For you. Your name was on his heart. He pursues you. You are here not by chance, not by accident. God is working in your life. He's drawing you to him. For for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So it's more than just this belief, this mental assent. It's actually this appetite for God. It is not just intellectually trustworthy, but it's existentially self-authenticating. There's something that happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's self-authenticating. I love the Bible because it it uses a lot of sensory language when it comes to God and experiencing God. For instance, one of my favorite verses is Psalm 34, 8. And the first part of that, you're probably not even familiar with the second part, but the first part is, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then it goes on. And it says, um, where is that? It says, blessed, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So in that verse, in those statements, in those those two phrases, you have the goodness of God, you have the greatness of God. He is a refuge you see how strong he is? Refuge would be a, like a castle on the mountain. And it says, blessed are those who, who run to that refuge. Blessed literally meaning total fulfillment, complete well-being is the man who takes refuge in him. So in those verses, we have the goodness of God mm, and the greatness of God, refuge. Wow. And in fact, let me just say this. That when you've tasted of the goodness of God, nothing compares. There is no sin, no temptation. There's nothing out there that compares. I went with a guy this last week, a week ago, and he showed me a $100,000 hot rod car. And it was like, wow, that's amazing. $100,000? Brand new Corvette engine in it. 
a thousand of those hundred thousand dollar cars don't even come close to the goodness of God and what you have in Him. Do you understand that goodness? Because it's the goodness of God that keeps you from chasing after all those idols and all those other things, whether they be good things or whatever they are. What changes our heart and why we don't pursue those things is because we have found our satisfaction in Him. Mm. Once you've tasted of His goodness, nothing compares. Once you've begun to see His greatness, there's no difficulty, no trial, no trauma that can overshadow that. You know in your heart, when you see His greatness, you can get through anything. That's what He's saying. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, total fulfillment, complete well-being is the man is the man who takes refuge in him. See, his goodness exceeds all temptations. His greatness exceeds all trials. That's a fact. So that's the first thing. That's what belief means. Turning to satisfaction of God. Here's the next one is humility. So if you have this belief, then naturally there's going to be this humility as your heart is filled up with God more and more. Life is all about no longer you, about your glory, but about his glory. Oh, and this is a powerful verse. Verse 20, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I mean, do you understand the context of this? He's just gone through and described all the murder and mayhem that's going to come into Judah as a result at the hands of the Chaldeans. I mean, it's dark. It's depressing. And yet he says, he says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I was reflecting on that. Uh, throughout the week. That, that is an amazing verse. In fact, if you can understand these verses, I mean, each of these verses in the midst of this darkness, I mean, we are enveloped in darkness in this chapter, in chapter 2, and then you got these flashes of light in verse 4, 14, and 20, and they are stunningly beautiful, giving us hope in the midst of darkness and showing us how we can uproot evil, darkness in our own lives. And if you have the hope of these verses, you can face anything. So I was reflecting on this verse, and I took my wife out on a, on a date last night, In-N-Out Burger. Yum. She likes hamburgers, okay? And so I said, hey, you want to go out on a date, babe? And she goes, yeah. So you want to go get a hamburger? Oh, I'd love to. So sitting in In-N-Out Burger, let's see, where are we? Right over here. By, by Costco. And uh, we're sitting in there and we're waiting for our order and I'm reading this verse to her and, I, and then all of a sudden it occurred to me these verses start hitting me. And so I turned to these verses as it related to this because what he's saying is it's almost like, God, look at all this stuff that's going to happen. Look what's happening in my life. Oh no, what are we going to do? Ah! And he says, hey, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God's in control. Don't freak out. And then I read, uh, I read Romans 11. This is what came to mind. Let me read it. Romans 11. These are powerful verses, starting at verse 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What's inscrutable? I, did, I looked at her and I go, well, you know what inscrutable is? I don't know what inscrutable is. So I got my little Blackberry and looked it up and it just means you're not going to have a clue about what God's up to, but he's in control and he loves you. And he's all wise. That's what it means. It's like you're not going to have a clue. Inscrutable, his ways. So let me read this again. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen man I was I read that I want to start break down and cry right there in in an out burger you know I'm like (laughs) you know kind of like What's wrong with the burger? Nothing. Double, double. Mmm. Like it. But it was, I mean, I started reading those verses. I was overwhelmed with the sense of God's presence and what he was speaking to me in those verses. He's almost like saying, when you understand the greatness, you just zip it. You just shut up. you just like, no arguing with God. God, you're in control. You know me. You love me. You're going to take care of me. That's that humility. My life is about you. I'm going to give glory to you in the midst of this dark time. And that's what he's saying there. Now, let's dive a little bit deeper into that so that you can understand it and apply it to your life. Here's what he's saying. No matter how bad things get, God is in control. So there's that sense of humility. I can't make heads or tails out of it, but God, you're in control. Now, I love the story of Joseph. Great story to once again tell us of the providential hand of God. Joseph was doted on by his daddy and... uh, so he was kind of a spoiled brat. He rubbed that in the noses of his brothers, and they, were, they hated him for that. And you remember what he did, what they did to him? They stripped him of his clothes, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. And he's in slavery for 15 to 20 years, but God miraculously, through his providential hand, takes him from the pit to the palace, second in command of all of Egypt. Why? for the preservation of not only of Egypt, but more particularly his own family, who through his family comes the genealogy, the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was part of the providential hand of God. So was it okay for his brothers to strip his clothes off and throw him into slavery? No, it wasn't. Was it okay for him to rub, you know, daddy's doting on him in their nose? No, it wasn't. But God was able to take all of that and work it for their good and his Glory. In fact, there's an interesting verse. One of my favorite verses is found in Genesis 50-20. I always tell people you need a 50-20 perspective because Joseph is looking in the eyes of his perpetrators and he's able to say in his life, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So this is what you can do. Maybe you're not there yet, but as you look at the evil things that have been done to you or maybe even the evil things that you've done, You can look at those things and say, yeah, they intended to harm me, but God, you intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. You will use that in my life for my good and your glory. See, that's what this this idea, this is that point that Habakkuk wants us to learn. Decisions count. You are responsible for them. And at the same time, God rules over our decisions and has a plan and will have his purposes for you and the world fulfilled. That's it. Enough said. That's really what he's saying here. Some call this an antinomy. Many theologians call it an antinomy. 
A paradox is a contradiction, but an antinomy is an apparent contradiction. It only looks like one. When we talk about man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, uh, an example of that would be light is, a, is an antinomy because sometimes it acts like a wave and sometimes it acts like a particle. But the Bible says you are absolutely free and responsible for your choices, but at the same time, there will be terrible things that will happen, but God is going to overrule them all for your good and His glory. Therefore, it tells us, I gave you some verses here, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians three seventeen says, whether in word or deed, do all in the name to put... Make his name renowned through your life. Whatever happens, whatever goes down. It says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. So you got, you got belief instead of unbelief. You've got humility instead of pride. And then you've got worship instead of idolatry. Here's the last one. Worship instead of idolatry. Worship is about filling your heart with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Here's another great verse from this chapter. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That would be a good memory verse right there. I was meditating on that this last week. Now, what is he speaking of? Here's what he's speaking of. He's speaking prophetically, I believe. Prophetically means predictions about the future. But he's also speaking practically, but prophetically, this is what he's saying. Now, listen to me. For those of us that have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of these days you're going to die. But what he's saying here, one of these days, when you die, you will go to be with the Lord. And when he comes back to set up his kingdom on this planet Earth, that you and I will bathe, we will drink, we will be drenched in, we will enjoy the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The presence of God will be so real to us. It'll be the most amazing experience that we've ever had. That's what he's saying. So he's talking prophetically into the future. Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. By the way, when you look at the, and I think that we're pretty good, pretty decent, I, I think for the most part out of all the other countries in our world today, politically, but man, are we still messed up. And what that does is it makes me long for Jesus to come back and to set up his kingdom. That's just to remind us once again, man can't run himself. We're messed up even in one of the greatest countries on this planet earth. We're jacked up. We still can't get it right. We almost shut down the whole government on Friday because we can't work things out. We desperately need Jesus, King Jesus, to come back, set up his kingdom. That's what that verse is talking about. And we will, we will bathe in the knowledge of the glory. The glory meaning weight, significance, importance. It will so overwhelm you. That will be heaven. Unbelievable. But it's more than that. I believe we can get a slice of heaven on earth too. And I believe that he's also talking about uh, practically because we were created to find our deepest satisfaction in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Another couple of verses, let me read them to you. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, 4, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Let me read these. Listen to what the writer says here. That you and I get glimpses of this, the glory of God. We get it through creation. My wife and I, this last week, we were sitting out in our hammock and uh, you know, the sun was setting. It was beautiful, looking up into the trees. It was kind of one of those moments where you're just like, ah, oh, I want to stay here forever just laying there. And it was just really refreshing. It was one of those moments that, that you saw the sun as it was setting. You could see it glistening through the, 
so through the leaves and the tree, and we were looking up, just re- relaxed, refreshed. And the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. You can see the glory of God through creation. You can get a sense of it through conscience. You get it through commandments. But ultimately, ultimately, it's in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the cross. And that's what he says here. He says, in their case, the God of this world is blind. He's talking about unbelievers. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where is that? In the face of Jesus When you come face to face with Jesus through his word, through prayer, through worship, you're coming face to face with the ultimate revelation of the knowledge and the glory of God. When you look at the cross and you meditate on the cross, that is intimate intimate knowledge of this glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God as displayed through Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 18, Chapter 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here's the deal. You're going to give your heart to something, unbelief, pride, idolatry. But if you put your faith in Jesus, you find your deepest satisfaction in him, your life becomes about him. This is what you're going to do. You're going to give your heart, you're going to fill your heart up with the beauty of and the knowledge of Christ. See, we all treasure something. Treasuring something is, is really worshiping that something. And so what it's saying here is that, that when Christ becomes the ultimate that you worship, you will fill your mind regularly with the beauty and the value of who he is. There is nothing more satisfying than that. That's what you were created for. That's what you need. That's what you hope for more than anything, whether you realize it or not. Now, let me wrap this up. We're going to take communion this morning. And I want you to prepare your hearts for this, and this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to show you something here in this text. It says, how do we know this is all true? Verse 16, he says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. He's speaking about the Chaldeans because they have sought glory at the expense of others and deserve shame and the cup of God's wrath. It tells us in Mark 8, 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Here's the point. Here's what he's saying. If you go unbelief, pride, idolatry, you're going to lose your soul. might be fun for a while. That's what he's saying. You're going to lose your soul. But you give your life for him. You turn and put your faith in Jesus. You humble yourself. You make your life about him. You begin to worship him. That's where you're going to find life. Now, you can't read... Verse 16, because he's talking about the Chaldeans. He says, because you've pursued glory, you tried to find your glory in the, this murder and mayhem of, of these countries and these cities, you're going to end up in shame. But if you would have sought me, you would find glory. And that's exactly what we, we learn. Because you can't read verse 16 without thinking of someone else. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his glory. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And Hebrews 2, 12, 2 says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, making light of it. Because he knew 
that putting on display the glory of God and our deepest satisfaction in that glory brought him joy. And so he scorned the shame. He took our shame to give us that glory. To give us that glory. Jesus Christ drank from the cup of God's wrath, says in Luke 22, 42 through 44. Taking the shame we deserve because we tend to pursue our own glory and so we deserve shame so that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he clothes us in the glory he deserves. So what is the glory that he deserves? Mark 1.11, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Now here's the deal. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, those words that were given to Jesus Christ from the Father in heaven are yours. They're yours. When was the last time you took communion, you prayed, you worshiped, and you had a sense that the Father was saying to you, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the glory you long for. That's the acceptance. That's the applause. That's the significance. That's the security your heart longs for more than anything. And when you have that, it changes you from unbelief, pride, idolatry, to belief, humility, worship. We're going to take communion. If you're not a believer, uh, you can watch. You can exit quietly as we uh, begin to do this. We're going to do it this way. It's taking the bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus. You're going to dip just the end of it in the cup, the grape juice, that represents his shed blood for you. And this is what I want you to hear more than anything. As you come up and do that, I want you to hear the Father saying to you, not because you've earned it, you, don't, you can't earn it, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And regardless of what kind of week you've had, you need to hear that deep in your heart. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the glory we need. That's what we so long for, to hear those words. That's what you were created for, to come to the face of God. And to understand the significance and the value that he places upon you. So as you take communion, you can feel free to come forward as we play the video and come up and do that. And then you can hang out with us for a little bit or you can exit. And if you would do that quietly, please, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this message. And thank you, God, as we head into next week and we begin to understand more clearly how to live this out, that our problem is sin, our need is your grace. And even next week as we wrap up this teaching that we learn joy in suffering, that we can have joy in the midst of whatever's going down in our life, Lord. Teach us your ways. Help us to, to live our life for your glory, for your honor. Lord, speak to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.